Hey, Whiskey Ringers, more updates coming your way. First off, the Jack Daniels barrels are totally sold out. These went in about a week, week and a half at most. If you haven't received your bottle stickers, please reach out to me with your address and how many you got, and I'll be happy to get those to you as soon as possible. Next up, our current single barrel, the Podcaster Yak Attack. A barrel rye finished in Armagnac casks, picked in partnership with This Is My Bourbon Podcast, is live and available on my site. You can go to stores.mashnetworks.co, that's .co, slash W-I-M-W-R. That's W-I-M-W-R for Whiskey In My Wedding Ring. Patrons get first access to this one too, and got free shipping alongside it. The next barrel pick that's scheduled is a toasted oat whiskey from Spirits of French Lick, which should be available in about February, and will also go through the same store. I also have a few picks rolling around right now that might pop up in the next few months. Best way to get first access, first knowledge of these things, special benefits, and codes for these bottles is to become a patron at www.patreon.com slash whiskey in my wedding ring. You can support for as little as a dollar a month with tiers at $5, 15 and 25 The 15 and $25 tiers also come with the opportunity to not only get samples from me, but the $25 tier lets you join me for barrel picks, whether they're in person or virtual. And with a lot of barrel picks hopefully coming down the line, this is the best time to sign up. There are just a few spots left at those top tiers, so if you're interested, don't miss out. Sign up now. Finally, I am thrilled to welcome Black Button Distilling out of Rochester, New York, as my newest sponsor. They've just opened a beautiful new facility, and I got to visit, tour around, and do an on-site episode that'll come out later this month. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for supporting. Sign up on Patreon and rate and review wherever you can. Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. This one is on-site in Rochester at Black Button Distilling. They have been on the podcast twice already now, once with Alex, once with Jason, and now we are back on site on their new location. So with that, I'm going to welcome on Jason Barrett, founder and master distiller, and Greg Stacy, director of marketing. There we go. Apologies, I was going to forget your title right off the bat, so sorry for that. It's quite all right. We um, called many things. You, well, you started listening off different things you were doing. I was like, okay, it's director of marketing, but there's probably other things there. Right. I know how it goes. In small places, it's... All hands on All deck. All hands on deck, yep. exactly. A world of many hats. Yes. Exactly. <clears throat> so, yeah, let's start off with the first thing, which is your new location. It's six times the size of the old one, ten times the production. This is the fourth expansion in the history of Black Button, but the first off of your old location on Railroad Street. So let's just start off with a new facility. What does this open up for you? It really opens up a lot of opportunities. Uh, we only moved about a mile from our original location, but you know we were very constrained in that space. We couldn't do private events. We had to stack pallets out in the parking lot. The equipment was shoved into the corners of the building, and we, you know, couldn't put it, bring anything else in. Um, so I mean, one of the, like one of the biggest examples. We now have a high proof room that has seven uh, full road tanker sized tanks in it. So now when we get the cream in for our bourbon cream, we don't have to shut the whole facility down and you know, use almost every tank we have and then make bourbon cream like crazy. We have a dedicated tank just to receive in that cream, can now make it into bourbon cream as we need um, and continue operations as we go. Uh, additionally, we went from a 1,500-gallon mash tun to a 6,000-gallon mash tun. Uh, and then from... 
you know, four sets of fermenters to five, but eventually we'll be able to hold 10. Um, so eventually we'll be able to make 40 barrels a day. So it's impressive just growth in general. And it made me think, I know when I first talked with Alex, this is going on about two years ago now, uh, the bourbon cream was about, it was over 50% of sales. Is that kind of continuing at the moment? Or has it shifted uh, more towards the whiskeys and other So the whiskey's been picking up a little more the last two years. Bourbon cream's still close to half, but a little under at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and as more whiskey keeps coming of age and getting older, uh, we keep finding more and more folks that have interest in it. So, you know, two years ago, the whiskey was probably just under three years. Uh, now, uh, the batches they're mixing up in the back are just over four. Um, and, you know, that extra you know, one or two uh, summers can make a big difference in what whiskey tastes like. Uh, So we've always put out stuff we were proud of, but one of the challenges when you make it all from scratch, uh, you know, and you're starting from scratch, uh, is, you know, stuff has to come out so you can keep the economics working. Um, And yet we've always tried to have each batch be a little older than the last Mm -hmm. so that uh, the whiskey keeps getting better and better. Plus, we figure we're getting a little better at making it as each year goes by. So those compounding things make for better and better whiskey. Gotcha. And we'll get a little more into the uh, new products and new expansions uh, just a little bit later. But um, just jumping back to the location, in doing the research, I found that you guys had to get actual legislation passed in order to move the distillery. Yeah, we had to pass a law. Um, so turns out that, uh, you can start a distillery in New York just by getting approval from the state liquor authority, but to move a distillery requires an act of the legislature, uh, which has only actually happened seven times in the last 90 years. Uh, luckily, uh, they passed ours. It was just a little paragraph, you know, black button's going to move from this address to that address. Uh, and it passed unanimously. Uh, but the New York Senate actually passes a full half of their laws in the last 24 hours of the year. And that was a little stressful, as I, I reminded our state senator that, uh, you know, tomorrow morning I'm either going to wake up and we'll have passed this law and Black Button will continue, or we're going out of business. No, I, I uh, saw that that was part of the State Liquor Authority in 1933, so... All that lovely post-prohibition legislation and such, but um, for listeners outside of New York, that is how the New York legislature works, too. So up until about eight years ago, the New York State Liquor Authority's charge and motto was to promote temperance and good health in New York. It is now a much longer thing that has something to do with economic development and reasonable consumption, but it's never good when the people regulating you literally would prefer you didn't exist. So the the State Liquor Authority has come a long way uh, in the 11 years we've worked with them. And now they really do are more of a partner to industry, but they they still have these laws from 100 years ago, um, and they are bound to enforce them whether they agree with them or not. And at uh, what point when you were planning the move did you find out that you needed the legislation? So we'd actually, we had known that for four or five years. So the, the move has been three years in planning. Um, we looked at over 200 sites. We had a 19-point checklist. Uh, you know, it was everything from zoning to fire district to the quality of the water in that water district. 
um, to how convenient was it for our employees, big enough for 18 wheelers, but convenient enough for a tasting room, uh, preferably a low rent district, uh, which often the manufacturing places are, but a place that consumers would still be comfortable coming down to for the tasting room. So it was really quite the Venn diagram. And uh, in this space, I was checking every commercial real estate website every day. This space came up on a Wednesday at 7 p.m. I called on it Thursday at 11, got an appointment to see it Friday at 9, and by Friday at noon, we were in negotiations on the lease. So the landlord uh, didn't have it up on, on the website for very long before we, uh, before we grabbed a hold of it. And it, it was the first space that had checked all 19 of our boxes, as well as it's just this beautiful old building. Uh, so the building was built for World War I. They made 75 millimeter howitzer shells here, uh, pressed them out of um, brass blanks. Uh, over 75% of the uh, shells fired on the Western Front were pressed in this building before being sent to Rock Island Armory, be filled with gunpowder, sent to France, and ultimately fired at the Germans. Uh, one of them has actually made their way home. It's uh, sitting on a shelf just above our bar. Uh, we managed to get it off of Etsy, of all things. Um, but we tracked it down, looked at the markings once it arrived, and were able to confirm that it was pressed in this building. And then I was uh, here, and so Alex has been touring me around, lovely uh, tour of Rochester and also of the old and new facilities. And he was saying that in World War II, you also had some tank manufacture. Yes, they made parts for Sherman tanks in this building uh, during World War II. So the building itself has pretty rich history. I mean, just a lot of exposed brick, always a beautiful site. Um, so you get this feeling, and uh, for listeners, obviously, it's an audio podcast, but I'll include, uh, for listeners, it's an audio podcast, but I'll include photos and such of the story. And you get the sense it's, of course, industrial because we're in an industrial zone and you're doing industrial activities. But there is a hominess about it that you get with the brick walls. Looking up, I just noticed this, the barrel walls on the ceiling, which I love. Yep. Um, and it's little you know, touches that make it seem like, okay, this is wood, brick, steel, copper, all working together. And a lot of that was done with a lot of intention and then also sometimes getting a little lucky. So you see these giant wooden beams. Um, our original place had big wooden beams. And so we knew that was a design element we wanted to bring in, but in order for beams that large to dry, we needed to cut them about three years ago. So we contracted with a Mennonite farmer not far from my farm, brought these beams down, uh, cut them to size, and then uh, put them in a warehouse to, to dry before we even had this site considered. And uh, we luckily, you know, had, you know, we, we cut a few extra and we made them a little longer. And then when the site came together, we were able to fit them into it. But uh, it was just a necessity in order to make it all work. Uh, but some of it took a little bit of a leap of faith of, well, I, I believe we will pass the law. I believe we will find a space and I will believe we use it. Or I guess if not, we'll own 25 really big beams. <laughs> so in addition to the building's history, you've also got a larger history in this district. So Culver University East, also known as Q, apparently. Uh, and just doing a little bit of reading, I wanted to let you guys tell the story of that, but it's a very strong cultural and historic presence within Rochester. So with moving into the space, 
I understand it was a very quick move in terms of finding the space, choosing it, and signing it, but at the same time, there is that cultural and historical milieu that you're entering into. So um, how do you see Black Button fitting into that as you continue to grow into this space? Yeah, so this neighborhood's always, at least for my whole life, has always been sort of where the young professionals in Rochester want to live. Uh, there's a lot of older, uh, you know, McMansions that have been cut up and turned into apartments, so they've got a lot of history and a lot of character to them. Um, it's a very walkable neighborhood. You've got a lot of small shops and a lot of independent restaurants. Um, and then the, the road we're on, University Avenue, really in the last five years, has really become a bit of a nightlife destination. Uh, the you know, Rochester's one urban winery is just down the street. Uh, we've got several breweries, several cocktail bars. Uh, we're about to have a bakery move in next to us. There's a lot of tech companies starting to put their offices down here. So, um, yeah, it's a, a very lively part of Rochester and, uh, and very accessible to the Rochester highway system. So those in the suburbs are able to get right down to it very quickly. Um, and overall, we just think it's a great, uh, you know, a great spot to live and work and enjoy a cocktail. And in terms of, just to finish off on the new location, with such a huge jump in production capacity at every step of the process. Right now, um, I think you have what, up to 14,000, if you wanted to grow to that, up yep. to 14,000 um, barrels per year, yep. uh, but doing about 4,000 now and then continuing to grow into that. Between the, let's say, 4,000 that you're doing for in-house production plus um, what you may do for contract, is there enough supply and demand right now to fill that capacity, or is that still something that you want to build up and fill over time? So, I mean, we're happy to make it as fast as the customers come. Um, we're in negotiations with several good-sized brands uh, that need more capacity but <clears throat> aren't in a place to build out their own facility currently. Um, and whether they're based in New York City or based you know, mostly throughout New England, um, you know, we like to make whiskey. So if they're ready, we're ready. And I think, although 4,000 and 14,000 barrels is a lot for craft spirits, uh, it's worth pointing out that the new Heaven Hill facility makes 4,000 barrels a day. Each of the two Jim Beam facilities make 3,000 barrels a day. So in the grand scheme of whiskey, um, if the industry stops growing, which it probably won't, <laughs> and we max out our capacity at 14,000 barrels, we will make one out of every 10,000 barrels of bourbon in America. And that is both an interestingly large and interestingly small number at the same time. Sure. Um, so we aren't you know, probably going to be making your Jack Daniels and your Jim Beam, um, but there are other craft producers um, or craft adjacent producers uh, that have more need that we think we can make really high quality whiskey for, and as long as the numbers work, we're excited to do it. And I think as of now, New York has the greatest number of distilleries of any state. Yeah, we're certainly right up there with the West Coast. Um, you know, California, Washington also have about 200. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we'd have to check on any given day, but sure. we're, we're right up there in the top three. 
And if you figure there's only about 2,000 craft distilleries in the nation, if there's 200 in New York, that means one out of every 10 distilleries in the country is in New York State. Sure. And, you know, within the 200 or so that are in the state, with this new capacity and the new production level, where does that place you? Um, certainly the largest privately owned one. Uh, you know, there's a couple that are down in the Hudson Valley that are now part of multinationals. Uh, and there's something about Wall Street money that really does seem to accelerate the growth of these things. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say we're probably making 20 to 30% of the whiskey in New York right at this facility. Which is in itself a uh, hell of a statement. Yeah. So with the growth, of course, has come new products, both currently and in the future. Uh, Jason, you were quoted in, uh, in Rock City Mag over the summer saying, you know, you've already distilled whatever you're going to distill and produce in, sorry, you've already distilled whatever you're going to release in the 2020s. And then whatever's going into the barrel now is for the 2030s. Pretty much. So at this point, that basically means you're committed to around, let's say, a seven to eight year age statement at, you know, growing from the age you are now with the whiskey, two, seven to eight years. Uh, what, I mean, that's a pretty bold statement to make. Yeah, I mean, that was always the long-term goal, uh, was to get the whiskey into that seven, eight-year range. Um, for our climate up here in New York, I think that's sort of the sweet spot. There's this misnomer that uh, whiskey keeps getting better forever. Um, and, you know, certainly when you've got 20-year-old scotch, you would think, oh, then 20-year-old bourbon must be delicious. Uh, I think if you sent a cask of bourbon to Scotland after 20 years, it might be great. Uh, but we get a lot of temperature fluctuations here and very cold, very dry winters, which cause a lot of evaporative loss. So our seven-year-old uh, whiskey should drink like a Kentucky 12. Um, and that's always been, again, kind of a sweet spot for me in terms of balance with wood, with grain character, with the yeast. Um, you know, I just don't want an oak bomb or something that's out of balance. Uh, so, you know, that's always been what we've been shooting for, and we think we've laid enough whiskey away that we'll be able to do that. Uh, to some degree, I joke that whiskey is a self-correcting uh, product because if people don't like it at that age, they don't buy it, so you don't have to bottle as much, so it keeps getting older. So if you keep the price the same, uh, in general, it will all work itself out in time. And, and, oh, sorry. and so right now, you know, our whiskey in 30-gallon barrels is right about four years. That's going to be roughly equivalent to a 53-gallon barrel that's at six years. Uh, but at this point, we're almost exclusively filling 53-gallon barrels. We do some specialty projects or R&D things in 30s, partly so that we can shorten the the cycle of R&D uh, to learn what works and what doesn't. And with these new products, I want to hit on a couple of them. The first one being you've got an upcoming release of the first in market barrel strength Empire Rye. So I think, Greg, we're going to throw that one to you to introduce it to us. Sure. Well, we've been uh, making our uh, Empire Straight Rye whiskey for a while, um, one of the founding distilleries in the Empire Rye Association. So we've been very proud of that that rye. Um, one of the things we're looking at as we've been playing with a couple of different uh, releases um, is extending a little bit on the rye side of things. Um, we love our rye and we thought a natural extension would be a barrel strength um, version of that. So we have a very limited release that's coming out during Empire Rye Week this year. We'll release it on the 18th of, of October. 
and we're going to have a special event here. One of the things that you can probably see from the size of the space, we have a lot of opportunity for events. Mm -hmm. So as we're uh, we're really getting our feet under us for for um, operating events, we're going to have this as being really a for a first full release with a new product. Um, the uh, um, the Ballast Brothers who have made a uh, documentary about rye in um, New York State called Fire, Water, and Grain, the story of Empire Rye. They'll be here. They'll actually be screening this video. They're kind of going around the state to various uh, distilleries and, and doing that. Awesome. Um, we're going to um, um, have a, uh, a rye flour ravioli made by a local pasta shop in town. Mm -hmm. And we have our own um, vodka cream sauce with a, uh, with a few local partners that will actually be part of that, uh, that as well. So um, a lot of fun. We like to make uh, make a little bit of a deal out of some of our new releases and, and make it an event so that people aren't just coming and just you know sampling and then buying a bottle and go, but get a chance to experience the whole the whole movement. That's smart. So, it's a way to like you said bring people in, but also have them remember it. Yeah, yeah. And the 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 rye the barrel strength rye itself is great. We've uh, this is actually um, a prototype, but um, the the first samples that we've had have been outstanding. So we're looking forward to uh, to releasing it. Awesome. And just to you know take a step backwards. Um, Let's just remind you know, listeners what Empire Rye requires. Well, I don't know, Jason, you could probably talk to the to the volume. I know as far as our um, our mash bill, we have ninety four percent Danko rye um, grown locally um, in the uh, in the mash bill, and then six percent malted barley. So it's very very rye heavy. Um, you get that flavor profile, a little bit peppery. Um, it's one of my favorites out of all of the whiskeys, but that's really um, part of the. Uh, um, uh, part of the profile and, and, uh, and the mission of the Rye Association is to really work um, on New York State grown rye and really promote that out. A lot of states have their their claim to fame that we were the rye state. You know, we we, we started it, we we own it. Um, we like to think that New York State is, and I think that's part of the, the the Rye Association and our mission to really get that message out there. I mean, if you go back to before prohibition, um, you know, really throughout most of human history. Um, alcohol was always a luxury. You know, it, it wasn't what uh, sustained you, but it certainly made life better. Mm -hmm. And so you often were trying to make alcohol out of something very cheap, um, partly because if it was something more, you know, more valuable, you tended to turn it into a food product because people didn't want to starve. So rye is an interesting grain in that it will grow almost anywhere. Uh, rocky ground, loamy soil, too wet, too dry. It is a hardy, hardy crop. And so um, farmers could end up growing it in land that was really not suitable for wheat or for corn uh, that they might feed to their animals. And it was very common you know, back in the agricultural society heyday um, to spend most of the winter in the barn with a small still, uh, converting this crop into whiskey and then taking it to the town and turning it into a saleable product. Uh, you imagine you live on the wrong side of a mountain and you need to walk two weeks to get to the big town where you need to buy a plow or need to buy whatever you need for your farm. You can either try to haul 2,000 pounds of grain mm -hmm or two barrels of whiskey. Well, it's a lot easier to put a barrel on each side of a mule and walk that path than whatever that giant sack of grain would look like. Um, and, and time was something farmers had quite a bit of in the winter because there wasn't any other crops to work on. Uh, so even a 10 gallon still could keep somebody pretty busy and you could you know, make this money. Um, the rise in New York, being a more northerly climate, tended to be 
um, a little plumper, a little softer. Danko rye was a more common style. We had access to more advanced uh, distilling equipment coming up the Erie Canal. Whereas if you go down into Maryland and uh, Pennsylvania, which also have their own rye traditions, uh, you tended to have you know ryes that were a little thinner, longer, grassier, bitier. So they just had their own style. So the Empire Rye Association was formed about six years ago um, by eight distillers who all you know were making rye, and it all looked into that history. Uh, it has to be 100% New York grain. 70, at least 75 of that percent of that grain has to be uh, rye. Uh, has to come off the still at under 160 proof, go into a barrel at no more than 115 proof, and be aged a minimum of two years. And so the idea behind these standards was to leave a lot of flexibility because there's a wide variety of how people do their rise, but also enforce some quality standards um, that would just make for a higher quality product. So, you know, the historic proof that whiskey was entered into a barrel at was between 100 and 110. Uh, it was moved to 125 to save wood during World War II. Um, it also made it cheaper to make whiskey, so many distilleries stayed with that as the legal limit. You know, there's lots of distilleries that go in at 124.9. Um, at Black Button, we've always taken a more quality-focused approach. Um, so we were excited because a lot of these rules that what we had already made was already in compliance, um, but we were just one of eight uh, voices in setting those rules. So. Um, so yeah, now at this point, I think there's over 25 folks across the state making Empire Rye, uh, and we just see it as a growing category that continues to show off both the history and the present of what is possible in New York State with whiskey. We have a lot of fun just educating people about rye, too, because I think with bourbon as being in such the focal point right now in whiskeys, rye seems to be a little bit more of the one of the misunderstood uh, or even unknown whiskeys. And I, you know, a lot of people who are a little bit uh, novice to the, to the category will just assume rye bread. And that's not what you're getting out of a rye. I mean, that's the pumpernickel in a bread. And, you know, what we'll get is uh, you're not going to get the sweetness that you do out of bourbon without the corn. But um, we, we look at, you know, the black pepper uh, spice and, and, and tones of, uh, of toasted nuts more than, more than anything. And um, I think it's a great um, sipper on its own as well as in a cocktail. But it's really fun to, to sample people on rye because they don't really know what to expect or they have a different expectation. So this event is going to be fun. I think a lot of people are going to learn a lot about rye that they didn't know. And especially the opportunity to, to try it in other products simultaneously is a lot of fun. Yeah. Yep. And as we're pointing out, I mean, with, within the Empire Rye designation, there's that room, whatever the other 25% of the grain, as long as it's from New York State, it can be anything. You, at Black Button, use uh, only rye and malted barley. Others, of course, do include corn in their mash bill and then... Uh, Greg, as you're pointing out, that's going to add a little sweetness to it, a little different flavor, whereas yours is more on the peppery side, the, I mean, what I would consider my preferred style of rye, I think. Um, we figured if you're going to drink rye whiskey, it should be a big, bold, right. kind of smack you in the face rye whiskey. And um, 94% will do that. Yes. <laughs> yep. And uh, also, as you were pointing out, I, I wanted to ask this, two questions, actually. The first one being, uh, you're saying you're using Danko rye. Mm-hmm. Uh, to your knowledge, was this the rye that's been used long term? Um. So there aren't 
I mean, there were hundreds of farmers and hundreds of distillers around the Rochester area prior to Prohibition. We certainly know that some of them used Danko rye because they were bringing it to the flour mills on Brown's Race on the Genesee River to have it milled. Um, but it's hard to know whether it was predominant. Yeah, but certainly some of them were using that. Um, most grains, when they were entered in, uh, were just entered in as wheat or small grain or rye. They weren't, you know, in the 1850s, they were less worried about genetic varietals sure. uh, than we are today. Um, and, there, and, and there are numerous other heritage styles that some of the other folks use. We just found that Danko grows really well here in the Genesee Valley um, and, uh, and has some historic ties. So that's why we decided to go all in on that. Plus, it makes for a really big, fat, juicy kernel. And I'm coming off uh, from this interview, just coming off of an interview with Laura Fields from the Delaware Valley Fields Foundation and Bob McDonald from Dancing Star Farms, both very strongly into the rye movement, more focused on Rosen, of course, and Keystone mm -hmm. Rosen, but still promoting rye as an alternative to bourbon and a spirit deserving of its own place in the spotlight. And, you know, going off of that, right now you're getting your grains all from still one farm. Mm-hmm. And it was a question that I posed to, to Bob in the interview about how much they could grow. Because at a certain point, you just have that many acres, and maybe you can increase the yield a little bit, but you still limit on the acres. So front, to tie it back to production, do you think in this facility, for your production limits that you have, will you still be able to focus just on sourcing from that one farm? Yeah, so we actually use just under 100 acres to grow what we're growing. Uh, when we started, the farm was about 1,000 acres. They're now at 2,600 acres. So in some ways, they're growing a little faster than, well, anyway, they're growing fast enough, let's put it that way. Uh, so even though next year we will probably be putting in close to 500 acres uh, as we get ready for everything, we're still we're not even actually their top customer. Um, interestingly enough, they specialize in growing this little black uh, bean that apparently is a delicacy in uh, Okinawa. And uh, so they ship, all, their, their main crop is shipping these specialty black beans over to southern Japan. Um, and then they grow a lot of corn for their beef cattle, and then they grow a lot of our stuff. Um, but yeah, at the moment, uh, our farmer, we have talked about this, and he has joked that uh, as long as I can give him good projections, he is happy to go keep acquiring more land to get ready. Um, and, you know, in a small farming town, uh, you know, a lot of these are generational businesses. You know, they're sixth and seventh generation. Um, they still run the farm out of the original homestead. But a lot of times as other smaller farmers don't go to that next generation, they have an opportunity to add to their farming um legacy and uh and they're already working on the eighth generation so i think they're going to be farming in the genesee valley for a long time it's the plan anyway we we like to have some of these new products be very limited um as well so really the the, the barrel strength is going to be released here only in the tasting room and only 100 bottles so um we've had a lot of these limited releases sell out before the events even happen so um it's, it keeps that uh, it keeps people coming back for more and looking for more, but it's also certainly not going to exhaust any uh, um, any supply of rye. Awesome. I mean, the the business side of things you guys clearly have figured out 
all, you know, all, sorry, let me rephrase that. That was terrible. Um, <laughs> As I say, we must be faking it pretty well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, working on it. Right, so I'll rephrase that. So, um, from, from an outside observer who's obviously not in the industry, but has seen a lot of distilleries and, and producers across the board, um, it seems like you have the plans in place that you can have in place. Um, Jason, as you said, it's a self-correcting industry to a certain point. Like, if you have a bad harvest one year, you got to fix or figure out where you're going to get the grain from. Maybe, you know, knock on wood, nothing bad happens. There's no accidents or anything. But with whiskey, with a multi-year product like this, there's always an element of the unknown that comes up. And we're actually facing one of those uh, next year. Um, as we know, the whiskey is four years old, so 2024's whiskey should have been made in 2020. Uh, something was happening in the world back then, I try not to recall. <laughs> um, but not only were we making hundreds of thousands of bottles of hand sanitizer for the local hospital systems, uh, but the world was a very precarious place, and so it was not, you know, it, it was hard to take a risk back then of putting whiskey down hoping that four years later you're going to need it. Uh, so we made very, very little whiskey in 2020. And by 2021, we had gotten back into making a bunch of it. Um, but there really is this gap in the, the whiskey library um, that covers a, a good six months of, uh, of 2024. And so we've had to be very careful and strategic about how we use whiskey in 2023 and what that will mean for the whiskey over these next 18 months. We actually withdrew from several states this year, getting ready for this dearth. Um, so there will certainly be enough whiskey for the tasting room, and we believe to keep all of our New York shops in good, um, in good places. But we actually even, it was just earlier this week that we, uh, we determined how much was going to go to each of our distributors outside New York, and that's all they're gonna get. Um, and the irony is that by limiting how much they can have and therefore making the product in more demand, it seems to have actually caused the sales to go up in those areas, which was actually not the intention. Uh, if I had just known that withholding it from people would lead to sales, I would have withheld it a long time ago. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it is a variable product. Yeah, we've, we've had years where we haven't been able to make as much rye as we wanted because the rye crop didn't come in the way we did. Luckily at only 9% rye in the bourbon and we prioritized that we were able to make lots of bourbon and the bourbon, um, because our farm has beef cattle, um, they grow a lot of corn. Mm -hmm. So therefore we're usually, and they can also substitute feed their beef cattle depending on how the harvest. So that one, is less of an issue but yeah we we plant about twice as much as rye as we think we're going to need with the hope that half of it uh comes out the way we want it to and most years it does but not always and it even comes down to where on the farm do you plant it um you know again 2600 acres and it's not continuous it's spread out over most of southern livingston county um we try to separate those rye fields so that if something happens you know, over here, over there, um, you know, each of these fields has its own microclimate. Uh, you know, the ones that are closer to the lake, uh, Canisius Lake, are more temperate. The ones that are up on the sides of hills are better drained. The ones on the west side of the hill have more wind. All of these end up impacting the crops. And so we've had a very dry summer here in uh, western New York. 
Um, my farm in Bristol has actually been almost drought conditions for most of the summer. And yet our, you know, 25 minutes away, our main farm that grows most of our grains, uh, they've had a, a very temperate year. And, you know, the way the rain has just moved, you know, south of some of the Bristol Hills has, has watered their fields quite nicely. And yet they've got friends 15 minutes away that, that will get 20% of their crop out this year. I mean, it's a little more than 15, 20 minutes away, but it sounds like we need to send some of the storms we've had in the city recently mm -hmm. more north and west up to you guys. I mean, the, the trouble with water is that you, you need the total amount of water that my farm has had this year has been right on par. The problem is we've gotten almost all of it in three days, which caused flash floods. Mm -hmm. And so there's nothing like having too much water and not enough water simultaneously. Right. Yeah, we've had... Um, I was going to say, this is just after all those floods and rains from Ophelia. And, um, yeah, we can probably throw some away from the Hudson Valley, away from the city, and just push it north. It'll get to us eventually just down the rivers. But, you know, push a little west for now. Right, spread it out. Spread it out. So in, I'm going to jump ahead, actually, here to a different line of question that I had that dovetails with what you were just saying and into the business side a little more, which is, as you said, looking ahead to 2024, you had to pull back in certain markets and limit the stock, which, as you said, it's going well. So, you know, you can't, um, can't knock it in that way. It'll keep interest going. But it does reflect a mindset methodology that you've focused on throughout Black Buttons history, which is owning your backyard and owning New York, really focusing on New York as the primary market. And the way that I'm hearing it is that when you were looking ahead and you see in 2024 you're going to have this darth of available whiskey that is of the age and quality that you want to put out in bottles you could have gone two ways you could have gone the way you did which was to pull back in the external markets and focus more on new york or, or at least you know make sure that new york was fully stocked and then deal with external or to continue stocking the external and growing pull back a little bit on new york and you know go in that direction what has led you to kind of continue investing in owning New York and focusing on our home state? I, mean, I think it's a variety of factors. Uh, I mean, one, it's just where we found the most success. So, you know, if I was ever to give someone business advice, it is simply pay attention to what is successful and do more of that. Um, you know, we make New York whiskey and that resonates with New Yorkers better. Uh, we do well in New Jersey. We do well in Massachusetts. We didn't do poorly in Texas. But, you know, in, they now have great whiskey being made in Texas. And so rather than going to Texas and trying to compete with Texas whiskey and Colorado whiskey and Florida whiskey, uh, you know, New York is our backyard. I think it also helps that in New York uh, we have a very strong culture of independent liquor stores uh, and that, you know, we're a very independent brand. So being able to make a deal with each individual liquor store owner of how these products will enhance their shop and how they will help grow that business and working together with them works really well for us. Honestly, we don't do as well in those big box stores where it just ends up on a shelf, one of a thousand, you know, the, the staff isn't as knowledgeable or isn't as available to give recommendations. You know, we, we really do well in the stores that are manned by the family that owns them and are able to tell our story and talk to people about why this is special and why you should pay $50 for a bottle of handcrafted 
locally made whiskey when you can get a big Kentucky bourbon for 35 and many people are going to drink both and that's okay, but you, you need that advocate. And we've just found that that advocacy is stronger here in New York. Um, we actually still believe that we have the ability to five X the company just in New York state. We actually don't have any sales reps in the Hudson Valley currently. We'll be adding one next year. Uh, we're only in about 6% of liquor stores in New York City, so lots of growth there. And Long Island has continued to grow by leaps and bounds for us, where we actually doubled our sales force there this year. Um, so, you know, there's still lots of opportunities to grow, um, and that's where investing in the new plant became a necessity if we're going to achieve these growth goals uh, in New York and beyond, but especially in New York, uh, we need needed more whiskey. That's also the, a lot of this is the distribution game too. You know, we're, we're self-distributed mostly in New York state. So we're in control of our own destiny. And when you're moving outside of state, going broader uh, geography, you're working with wholesalers. They have a lot of brands in their house. So you're you know, competing with that share of mind with the wholesaler to sell into stores. Um, we can do that even in areas that were further away from Rochester because we can tell the story. It's tougher to get that story to translate down when you're working through wholesaler sales reps and they're selling a big book and they have a lot of different brands. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the farther away you get from home, there's a lot of us in other markets. You know, there's a lot of craft distilleries around, so we're competing with that share of mind. Mm -hmm. We're very, very proud of the New York story, so we can tell that and it resonates a lot stronger in New York State than it does in a, in a state that's outside. We, we have other ways that we position ourselves on quality, um, but that New York state of mind doesn't necessarily resonate in Texas. It's also been interesting, the rise of direct-to-consumer shipping. You know, you now have the opportunity for those folks that, real, that either do read about us in a magazine or listen to this podcast. If they want to get the product, they can now have it shipped to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you figure, you know, if there's 2,000 craft distilleries and they on average make 10 products, that would mean to, just to cover craft, not even imports, wine or the big guys mm -hmm. a store would have to stock 20,000 SKUs and most liquor stores don't that's just not realistic mm -hmm. um and so therefore they they have to be choosy and you know they're not saying that this whiskey is any better or worse than one made up the road but again you know there's often a strong pre preference for local so it's you know, no secret on this podcast, I like to push New York distilleries and producers when I can because I'm very proud of my home state, just as you two are. And, oh, Greg, actually, I should ask, are you from New York also? I am. Okay. Yep. All right, good. We've got a full team here. So, yep. um, sorry, Alex. Um, <laughs> we, we've adopted him. I don't okay. know what it is about Ohio that makes people flee the planet. <laughs> they have more astronauts than anywhere. But, um, <laughs> but he, he made the right choice. And, you know, your wife's from New York too, right? So see, okay. he married a New York girl, he lives in New York, he made all the right choices in life. I, I feel like, and you, Alec, you can come over for this if you want to sure. you know, respond to the accusations, but um, I feel like that tidbit about Ohio making, want, making people want to leave the planet, it's got more astronauts than everywhere else, that is not the first time he's used that, is it? No, I think that's uh, at least three times a quarter. Okay. Probably we get that one. I mean, for what it's worth, it's my only joke about Ohio. Like, yeah, so I just keep going back to it. Most but. jokes I get are just about corn that's like my favorite thing but I don't know why that's the only thing most people could think of I mean it is one of your favorite things just when it's been distilled into bourbon right 100% there you go <laughs> um, sorry I figured I would 
Thank you, Alex. I figured I would give you a chance to respond to that because it was, it deserves, you deserve a chance to respond. Anytime so. there's more acquisitions, I'll be right over here. Don't worry. You got it. Um, for our listeners, you may remember Alex was actually the first Black Button guest in, I believe, episode 36, something around there. So um, a while back in the early days of the podcast still. So um, thrilled to have him hosting us. So this year, this is about three weeks after I've come back from the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. Uh, also went through Tennessee there, and you know I love visiting down there to see the distilleries, the big guys, and the craft guys. But you know, let's say hypothetically, I go back to uh, the Kentucky Bourbon Fest next year, and not only am I trying what's there, but I'm also talking to people about, hey, you should pay attention to New York whiskey, um, both Black Button and uh, other brands that we love and and want to support. What's the sales pitch or the elevator pitch for why people need to pay more attention to New York whiskey. This month's Impact Spotlight is on a new whiskey from Adelphi, McLean's Nose, a new blended scotch whiskey expertly crafted to have a West Coast character with both a high malt content at 70% and a high proportion of ex-sherry casks. McLean's Nose is both a nod to Arden Market's rugged Western Peninsula home with its beautiful landmark on the south coast of the peninsula and as an homage to the long mentorship they've received from Mr. Charles McLean. McLean is an undisputed legend, affectionately referred to as the Chief Nose, since 1993 when the Adelphi name was revived as an independent bottler by Jamie Walker. Bottled at a super approachable 46% ABV, this is the perfect dram to sip while reading one of Charlie's acclaimed books. At an even more approachable $35 a bottle, this is a must-buy, especially for those of us who much as we must love bourbon, are going to be fully bourboned out by the end of this month. Join me in the dram and look for McLean's nose in your favorite whiskey shop near you. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. I mean, to me, it's the, what makes life interesting is the variety. You know, I don't want to eat the same thing for dinner every night. I, want to, I don't want to go to the same restaurant every night. We're not trying to make Kentucky bourbon, we're trying to make New York bourbon. And to us, that's a little softer, a little sweeter, a little easier on the palate, you know, mixes well in a cocktail. Not that Kentucky bourbon doesn't, but we've got different grains, different equipment. So if you love bourbon, why wouldn't you try New York bourbon, Texas bourbon, Washington bourbon? And I think folks don't realize how agriculturally rich New York is. Um, you know, when you say New York to most of the rest of the country, I think they think Manhattan. Yep. Um, and while there's plenty of whiskey being made in Brooklyn, they're growing the grains upstate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our, I mean, the Genesee Valley was carved out by the glaciers a millennia ago. The topsoil is 400 feet thick. We have some of the clearest, cleanest water in the state, or sorry, in the country, and we have a very variable climate. These are the things you need to make great whiskey. So you add that to passion and people paying a lot of attention. Um, New Yorkers are known for being a little fastidious. Um, And all of a sudden there's no reason you can't make great whiskey. And that's also not to take anything away from the great whiskey they make in Kentucky. I have great friends at many of these distilleries. you know, it, there is like nothing cooler to, than, to me than when I get to hang out with Nicole Austin at Cascade Hollow or Craig Beam 
uh, formerly of Heaven Hill, now down at Jackson Purchase, and pick these guys' brains about airflow through a whiskey warehouse because there aren't that many people that geek out about that like us mm -hmm. and them. Um, and what I think most people don't realize is when it comes to quality, when it comes to safety, this is an incredibly collaborative industry. Everybody wants every other producer to make better whiskey in a safer way. You know, sure, if we're competing at a cocktail menu, do I want them to pick our bourbon? Of course we do. But you know, until you've tried it or tried a bunch of them, I think people should open up their minds. I mean, there's thousands of wineries around the country. There's thousands of breweries. And now there are 2,000 distilleries. And you've got everything from guys like us making 40 barrels a day with 147 employees to a friend of mine in Colorado who uses about one pallet of glass a year. We go through three pallets an hour. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. Her and her husband make great products. You can only get them in their little ski town. It's a part of their community and a part of that destination. And you know, if you're in Crested Butte, look at the distilleries that are in that town. And if you want to try new and exciting things you can only get there, do it. But to me, I mean, again, I, when I travel, I don't want to eat at Applebee's. I don't want to eat at TGI Fridays. I want to go for what that place is known for. I was at a convention in St. Louis, and they do fried ravioli. That's a big deep, thing down there. Deep fried yeah. ravioli. I liked it. I don't know that I'd eat it every day. I feel my life is richer having eaten it. So I drove 20 minutes outside into this podunk town of uh, downtown, took an Uber way out to the middle of nowhere. According to Yelp, this place had the best deep fried ravioli in St. Louis. And that's a memory I'll keep with me for a long time. And to me, whiskey, especially whiskey with that sense of place, can do the same thing for people. Maybe we'll uh, deep fry some of the ravioli for our event for you, just, uh, just for memory. There we go. I was thinking <clears throat> that, yeah, you right. beat me to it. Yeah. No, I think, you know, in, in, in certainly variety and, and genuine quality. And I think one of the things that we have a, a lot of uh, work to do in, in educating people about New York, I think, you know, Kentucky has been known for bourbon forever. And I think there's a perception and sometimes we'll have friendly arguments with people even on social media that you can't make bourbon if it's not made in Kentucky, mm -hmm. which isn't true. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just getting people to understand that real great bourbon is being made up here. And um, some of that's the sampling opportunities and just keep tooting our horn and telling people we're making great stuff. I mean, I, from what both of you were saying, I completely agree. And I think uh, to put into context of rye in particular, Jason, you said it best earlier. Rye grows everywhere. Yeah. It grows in Texas. It grows in Colorado. It grows in New York. Um, corn may be a little bit more difficult depending on the season and, and conditions, but, you know, rye is just basically if there's good enough soil somewhere, it'll grow. And I don't even know that it requires the soil. That's I've seen true, it yeah. grow up in uh, sidewalk cracks. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but, I mean, also I think people don't pay enough attention to the weather. I mean, it truly, and, and someday I hope to do this. Um, so, you know, maybe you've heard it here first. I would love nothing more than to make 40 barrels in a day here in Rochester, split them up into 20 sets of two, keep two here and ship a set of two to 19 different friends of mine across the country. And I've already had about 10 people that agreed they would house these barrels. And then at the end of four years, ship them all back and bottle them. Because I can tell you that in, the idea is controlling for every variable that we could except for the weather. But the barrels that go to Denver and the barrels that go to Houston and the barrels that go to Portland, whether that's Maine or Oregon, are going to taste distinctly different mm -hmm. 
than the barrels that are aged here in Rochester, even though they were all made the exact same day, put in the exact same barrels from the exact same fermenter, that warehousing and weather is going to dramatically change them, as well as just the trip across the country, all that rattling around on the trucks. Um, so I think there's also just that different parts of this country, the stuff, you know, you, you, you can't get bagels like Brooklyn anywhere except Brooklyn. And that's really due to the water. But it's also due to just the, the history and the competition. Because you can't have a subpar bagel in Brooklyn. You'd go out of business. You can't have subpar barbecue down in Texas because you'd go out of business. And now with 200 distilleries, we're starting to prove that if you're going to make whiskey in New York, it better be good because otherwise the rest of us are going to kick your ass. That's as good of a sales pitch internally as it is externally. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, if you look at, um, you know, is, is the distilling segment is catching up with, with craft beer. You know, craft brewing really got into the whole geographic terroir discussion. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's, there's East Coast, uh, West Coast IPAs, New England IPAs, you know, all these segmentations. And, you know, for a long time, a lot of the, uh, the craft, the smaller uh, craft breweries were really talking about their local grains, their local water. And they've nailed that down pretty well, and now we're taking, taking that cue, and, 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 and it does matter. I mean, we're, we're not just selling it because it's a... It's a marketing line. It's it's true, and uh, the just the, uh, the just to circle back the the what I meant to say with rye growing everywhere is that you're going to get a different profile of rye mm -hmm. beyond just the type of rye. You know, Danko, right. Rosen, any Wheeler, any other type of rye. If you had the same Danko growing in 50 different states, you'd get 50 different right. styles of yep. rye that come off of the stalk, and then 50 different styles that come off the still. Right. And it's worth, it should be worth and interesting to try as many as you can. Yeah. And jumping in with New York being so heavily, um, or with the potential to be so heavily a rye focus on the state. Because I don't know what the balance is between, you know, total production in the state between bourbon, rye, other whiskeys, but... I would imagine bourbon is still the lion's share of it. Probably, yeah. It is the lion's share of the industry. So. Right. Um, actually, I would imagine the number one thing made in the state is gin. Probably, yeah. Partly just that it's, it, you know, you can make gin in a few weeks. Bourbon's got to be laid down for years. It's a lot harder of a capital investment turn mm -hmm. uh, to run a whiskey distillery. Right. Um, you know, I think water is, is one of those big things, too. Jason t touched on the, the checklist of this location. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our Finger Lakes water um, is a huge variable. And, and that's something that, you know, that is, that is terroir. And one of the things that Jason was talking about, the checklist in this building, is that this allowed us to stay on the same water uh, system that we were in the previous location. Mm -hmm. So moving out to another water district could have uh, varied our flavor profile. So this, would, this keeps would us, have. Would have. I mean, truly, you move this plant 10 miles north, and you're going to go from the Hemlock Lake Water District to the Lake Ontario Water District. The micronutrients is totally different. And we even did some test runs with it, and it would not have been a, a move in a good direction right. for us. So jumping back to the uh, business side again, too, because honestly, we don't talk about the business side very often on this podcast, and I want to talk a little bit more because it's really important to understand that this is a business and requires a lot of investment and time to make it successful. Just to throw a couple of numbers out there, I mean, you're among the 5,000, you're on the list, I should say, of the 5,000 fastest growing privately owned businesses in the U.S. Uh, you're actually in the top 650 of that group, so really almost in the top 10%, I think top 12%. 900% growth in the past three years. In addition to those numbers, the tangible assets, the new space, more barrel warehousing, 
um, from you know your next looking forward to your next couple of years what does this mean for the brand for black button and beyond i mean it's been a real challenge um we've got luckily got a very passionate uh team that it works very very hard and i think also is very decisive is one of the reasons why we're able to move as quickly as we are um I think it's important to note that we, you know, we make vodka, we make gin, we make other things that can be turned in a couple weeks, um, because otherwise the growth of whiskey does become sort of a cash flow monster that can eat you alive. You know, you've got to take all your profits from this year and reinvest them into whiskey for five years from now at a pretty prodigious rate. Um, you know, I there were not a lot of other distilleries on that list. Uh, there are not a lot of manufacturing companies on that list. And certainly manufacturing companies that again have to make product years in advance. So you know, I'm incredibly proud of what the team does day in and day out and uh, how much focus and dedication goes into making that happen where they really scrutinize every marketing dollar. We really focus on every sales call, you know, doing the very best we can for our customers. And we found that if, um, if we work hard and we put out great product and we've got great people and we refine good processes, um, we end up having a lot of success. And, um, you know, and at the same time, I think we're all very cognizant of all the things we wish we had done better. Um, I think that's one of the, the challenges of, uh, of, you know, folks with a, a high, you know, a, a very decisive uh, mindset is oftentimes what we could have done better stands out. So we, we try to stop and make sure we smell the roses and and celebrate these successes because in some degrees we're, we're running so fast, you know, um, we're, we're being honored uh, by the local chamber of commerce for our growth. And I was joking with Greg that we got to be careful if we keep going to all these galas, we're not going to have time <laughs> to actually keep growing. Um, but since it sounds like they're going to bring us up on stage, I guess we better go to that gala and put on our ties and, right. uh, you know, drink some cocktails with some fine folks. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Um, we're going to keep making more whiskey. We're going to fill up the plant. Uh, we're going to keep hiring great salespeople. We're going to grow our marketing team, keep sharing the message, um, you know, even after 10 years, I'm pretty sure only about 7% of Rochester has come on a tour. And now we've got a whole new place to show them uh, where only about 100 of them have been on a tour. So, you know, and in time, I'm hoping that, that whiskey tourism comes to New York the way it has come to the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. And will people come up from New York City and have a weekend in the Finger Lakes and make Rochester and our distillery one of their stops and hopefully buy some bottles and take it home and share it with friends and talk about this great agricultural opportunity we have in upstate and then hopefully find our bottles in their local bottle shop and keep drinking Black Button as part of that memory and part of wanting to support their local economy. I mean, you can't outsource locally made jobs. You know, when we want to make more whiskey, we have to hire more New Yorkers. When we want to, you know, malt more New York barley, we've got to pay more New York farmers. When we want to buy more New York barrels, they've got to have more New York loggers. And I'm, I'm not against globalization and free trade, but 
you know, it's it's awfully nice being able to drive down the thruway and shake hands with the people we're doing business with and really get into the details of what makes that barrel great, what makes that grain great, what makes this the best scenario for them. Because as we are open and honest and communicate with folks, we end up finding great opportunities that uh, that are good for them and good for us. And that's kind of the same reason we like having so much local sales is you can go and partner with folks pretty easily. And I think, you know, from a brand messaging standpoint, that, that, that Inc. 5000 recognition is it's great earned messaging. You know, we spend a lot of time creating the message, telling the story and putting our perspective out. This is a third party saying, hey, you guys are, are all right. And, you know, that's that's a message we can put out there. And, and locally, it resonates with a lot of folks to say, wow, you know, look at this hometown proud. You know, this is a this is a recognition that came from from outside. And this is a Rochester company doing well. Um, you know, an economy where that's not always happening. You don't hear a lot of great messaging about business growing. That gives a lot of people reason to be proud and support us. Um, and also, the farther we, we get from home, that's also another point where people from the outside can hear about Black Button and say, oh, you know, somebody in Albany or downstate may start to recognize us a little bit more than they, than they may have. So, um, yeah, no, we love to get that kind of uh, messaging, and it's just, it, it all helps. And, I mean, granted, I only took one business course in college, so... You know, don't rely on me for this uh, exactly, but thinking back, I'm pretty sure this would qualify kind of like phase two of a three-phase business. At this point, you're going through the exponential growth. You're on the definitely the upward trajectory on the graph. Um, now, 900% in three years, that's as exponential as you can get. Pretty Just much. about. Just about. Right. Um, I'm not sure I even recommend it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, from between the production and what we've been saying just while we're recording, it sounds like the that maybe not 900%, but the exponential phase is still going to go on for another couple of years. Yeah, I mean, we're just about to kick off our 2024 planning, and after that, we're going to do a new strategic five-year plan, and most of the, you know, but scratching it out on the back of the napkin, there's really no reason we don't expect to be a $100 million company in five years. We, you know, one of the things that was actually holding our growth back was the limitations of our previous facility, at both physically being able to make the product, but also just having people in different buildings and having to truck stuff around the city uh, just complicated a lot of it. And now having everything back in one house really streamlines that communication, streamlines the ability to get things done. And um, yeah, I, I have no reason to believe that in five years we won't be a hundred million dollar company and that is a very strange thing for you know a kid who was sleeping on a futon working with me myself and I just 11 years ago I mean we have 147 staff members we're getting to the point where we actually have to get an enterprise level payroll system that's just you know not something I was expecting and I you know, and now that you know, we have big conversations about profit sharing 401k and health insurance and all these things that we just weren't able to provide in the early years and that, you know, nobody really walks you through how to pick out a health care plan uh, for your company. And, you know, when we got the first one, when we had 11 employees, we only could have three options. Now, with over 100, we have lots of options. And so therefore, the employees can kind of pick themselves for themselves what works well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, each year we, you know, we make our plan, we do our best uh, to achieve or exceed that plan. At the end of the year, we sit down, you know, see how that money should be reinvested. And 
do it all over again. And is there room to grow further at the site if you're, you know, next 10 years come around and you're needing to go past the 14,000? So the facility is built to have three phases of it. That's what takes us from the 4,000 to the 14,000 barrels. If, and then we store barrels offsite, partly that they need different conditions and partly that you want really cheap rent. Sure. Um, so we, the, where our new barrel warehouse campus is has the ability to hold 10 barrel warehouses. So eventually that would be 300,000 square feet or 150,000 barrels of bourbon. If we get to that point, there is lots of land around Rochester. We will find a second campus. Um, I don't know that beyond 14,000 barrels has much interest to me. Um, we picked this size very intentionally in that it felt that it was a size we could achieve while also being able to achieve the great quality that, go, that we believe goes into every barrel, <clears throat> where you still are touching every barrel, doing it one barrel at a time. And maybe 10 years from now I'll feel different, um, but at least at the moment it is hard to imagine getting bigger than that. Uh, now that doesn't mean we couldn't put up a second plant that maybe just did the contract work. You know, there, there's lots of options and I've you know, learned that trying to be too far, you know, it's, it is good to think of the future and plan for the future, but also since we don't know what the future holds, you know, I don't know if, um, if we need to be 10 times this size or if we will struggle to fill this because the future has yet to reveal itself to me. But at least for me, I mean, again, 14,000 barrels a year, that's one out of every 10,000 barrels of bourbon made on the planet. Maybe we don't have to get bigger than that. You know, because I, I would never want to sacrifice the quality and the commitment we have to our employees. You know, it, it's important to me that I know, you know, each of their names and what's going on in their family and have the time to talk through when they're moving from one house to another or what's going on in their personal lives. And at some point, that's very hard to do as you continue to scale and scale. Or maybe I'll get better at it. I don't know. Uh, but at least at the moment, I'm thinking 14,000 barrels is enough. Now, also, that's a, this is a hard time to ask me because I've just lived through the trauma of moving this. Sure. Uh, so maybe five years from now, I'll have forgotten and be ready to go. Also, if the last plant is any indication, as we live in it more and more, wouldn't surprise me if we can make 20 or 25,000 out of this place. You know, as we get a little better at each of the pieces. Fair enough. And Greg, from a marketing standpoint, what does that look like for you? Well, <clears throat> certainly it's responding to the market. I mean, <clears throat> there's a lot of different variables to this. I and mean, when we look at um, certainly the distribution market and, you know, we have fewer products that are out there than we do um, here in the tasting room. So we're really almost marketing two different kind of companies, you know, as we're looking at maintaining and growing our core brands. Um, what does that look like here in Rochester versus Albany? You know, they're, even though we're in New York State, we have to have a different approach. It's really supporting and working really, really closely with our sales team. You know, we can do a lot of things internally and say, hey, we want to go this direction with a new product or, or focus on a given product, but we really kind of have to respond to what's happening in the market and how our sales team is re retail. You know, retailers are their own business. Mm -hmm. So as much as we may want to push something, we kind of have to go with what their customer base is. So, um, you know, just from that standpoint, it's just, um, it's, it's, it's working with the market, working with what's happening in the reality of sales. 
the messaging is just continuing to change that messaging or maintain it depending on where we're where we're going sure. um, I think we've been doing a good job of refining our brand messaging mm-hmm. keeping consistency you want to be the same person you don't want to come up with the same clothes all the time but maybe get a new pair of shoes sure. so it's uh, it's just staying on our toes with that but I think you know innovation and in, in, in product is is another thing that that um, here in internally um, in this space <clears throat> a lot different than our distribution business we're trying to keep ourselves interesting to our consumers that are coming to visit us here. One, just from the cocktail and bar standpoint, but what do you have new? And, you know, I think we're, we're all in the craft beverage industry, kind of victims of our own success because we've innovated and come out with so, so many new things. Uh, now everybody expects that. So, okay, now we have to keep filling that pipeline because everybody's looking for the next thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, we can do that so far, but we, uh, we, have to, we have to do it within strategy. And that brings us to uh, the last group of questions, which is about your new products, experimentation, and what you released around the 10th anniversary. And um, before I forget, uh, what is the actual anniversary date? Because I think I have it marked as December somewhere, but it was also celebrated in June. So June 6th is okay. uh, the day I filed the paperwork for the company. Um, and so that's historically the, uh, the anniversary or birthday that we celebrate. Gotcha. Um, we started making because you, know, you you end up with a lot of these. Like we we made whiskey or we made vodka for the first time in October. We made whiskey for the first time in February. We opened to the public for one day in December. Like uh, so, I could probably come up with fifteen anniversaries around the year. Opening um, here, July fifteenth. There's a new anniversary there we now. Go. <laughs> um, but filing the cor- corporate papers, uh, June sixth, twenty twelve. Um, was the uh, was the one we've historically celebrated? Gotcha, gotcha. So you just celebrated the tenth anniversary then. So congratulations to the entire team. Uh, it's a month before, as you as you noted, month before you're opening the new facility. So it's been quite a summer so far. And in terms of, there were a couple of products that came out around the tenth anniversary, including uh, what I believe is your oldest bourbon, yep. your oldest aged state of whiskey to date. Yep. Yeah, so uh, luckily, seven years and 50 weeks uh, before our 10-year anniversary, it was very unfortunate that we hadn't laid them down two weeks earlier. Uh, They would have been eight years old, but technically, I think they were seven years and 50 weeks. Um, We had put down two 53-gallon barrels. They were put down in in, uh, independent stave casks with a char one, uh, which is the lightest char. Uh, they sat in the back of warehouse number one, which was a cinder block warehouse, so fairly moderate temperature swings. Uh, and it really took quite a while for these barrels to come to their own, you know, come into their own. Uh, they're one of only about six barrels in the facility left uh, that were made prior to Jeff Fairbrother, our master distiller, joining us. Um, and so a few weeks, you know, we, we were expecting that they would be ready. We pulled them a few weeks before the... Uh, before the uh, event, and we were ha- happened to work with a local um, organ shop uh, that makes church organs all across the country, and they made these beautiful uh, wooden hanging display cases for us. Um, this summer also marked a hundred years of my family being involved in the button business. So, folks will see uh, there's two anniversaries being celebrated uh, in that box. And it just was, you know, a, a really cool set of whiskey to bring to market in a beautiful package. The team did a great job with a black-on-black 
print, uh, screen print. So we really kind of went all out for this, uh, wanting the outside of the package to reflect the quality of the juice inside the package. And, um, you know, it is a big, bold bourbon that uh, has seen a lot and seen us through all these years. And, uh, and it's been very well received by the public. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's always fun in the, in the marketing standpoint, too, because we can we can certainly suggest some things that we'd like to see. But um, a lot of things are happening in the back and a lot of things have been happening over time. Um, Jason will come out from time to time and say, oh, hey, look, this is what do we want to do with this? Here's a new exciting opportunity. So there's always uh, always something popping up that, that gives us some fun to play with. And as I say, and there's quite a few things in the warehouse uh, that we're just waiting to see how they turn out. I mean, that's one of the challenges with experimentation is you lay these barrels down and they might take three years, they might take five years, they might never taste good. Um, which means you do have to be very judicious about planning your experimentation. Uh, but also, yeah, marketing often finds out once it's ready and is like, hey, wait, I didn't know we had that. Well, we've got a lot of things. Right. Um, but yeah, we, we go through our experimentals from time to time and, uh, and the ones that are deemed ready come to market and the ones that don't, time does tend to heal most wounds um or we you know we just aren't willing to admit that uh, that that one went wrong fair enough and i mean i've heard a couple of the experimentations that you guys have done some are on the shelf so they're not you know um what's the word i'm looking for wow just went right out of my head they're not <laughs> whispers there we go yeah um but they're actually on the shelf so we have port finish um tequila barrel finish and I, just meant, I don't know about the port, but for the tequila barrel finish, not an insignificant amount of time in those tequila barrels. So all of our reserve series, uh, the apple brandy finish, the port finish, the tequila finish, uh, we tend to do several years in those secondary barrels. Um, I, have, I think secondary finishing has so much great potential for our industry, but I like it, you know, like for the port, it's black as night, deep, rich stone fruit, um, you know, and if you're going to ask people for this kind of money, you've got to deliver a product that really knocks their socks off. And at the same time, if you're going to make a product that really knocks people's socks off, you've got to ask them for the money that makes it worth the investment of doing that. So, you know, the port, for instance, we lose 57% of the whiskey due to evaporation, but it was four year old whiskey that then does anywhere from two to four more in a port cask. Um, and we only have a few of those casks and we are always babies, babying them and moving them around. Um, so that they get the optimal spots in the warehouse for where we're trying to drive them. And we usually only release one barrel a year. Um, and for a while we were making two barrels a year. My guys did point out that someday that math wouldn't work. Um, but you know, these are, these are the creative parts. It's the chef's table. It's, it's what the owner wants to put down. Um, if time and money were not the sole objectives, um, and you can only play so much with that if you're, you know, because otherwise you would run out of time and money. But, well, and that creative spirit too, it's, you know, the chef's table, it's the distiller's table. It's, it's, you know, some of the things that we've been doing are experimental series. These are just labeled as experimental series and by number, and we'll have very, very limited releases. This one was actually... Um, our most recent, and it was a, uh, it's a 30% um, smoked corn in the mash bill, which is just a totally different um, type of bourbon. And um, these are the things that, one, it, it allows our, our distillers to have a little bit of fun and experiment, 
And I think the idea is if something really hits, hey, now we have a product that we can bring to the broader market. Some of the things like this, a smoked corn, uh, maybe not so much, but it's a great um, it's a great thing for our consumers to come in and just try something that they really, really haven't had before. Mm-hmm. And we're doing very limited batches, so they come and go. Um, so we'll see more of these that will come out from time to time. I couldn't even tell you what they're going to be because they're still behind the curtain being made. Um, and as Jason was saying, it's you know testing, tasting, and okay, we have something that's ready to come out. So we'll we'll have a number of those things that are coming out um, in our gins. We have one of our distillers doing a special holiday gin. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a one-off hit just for the holidays. Solstice Gin is the name. It'll have a little bit more of the features you'd expect from from that season. A little bit more pine and cranberry. Um, something that makes a great gift, but also something that customers are going to be really interested to try because it's that time of year. Um, kind of like the pumpkin beer thing. We want it to go away after that, so we're not sitting on it too long. So sure. it gives us a lot of fun to to, to talk about different products in, in short periods of time. Um, allows the staff to, uh, the, the distilling team to, to experiment and, and have some fun and, and just kind of crack their knuckles other than what we're doing every day. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of fun innovating. And in addition to the finish you just mentioned, I mean, if I overheard correctly, and um, Alice can correct me if I misstated on these, but at a couple of different wood spirals as well, mm-hmm. and with yellow birch, white ash, I mean, these are not woods that I have heard of being used before. Maybe they have, but I certainly haven't heard of them. I was going to say, I can't name anyone else that has either. Yeah. Uh, we, we do tend to uh, be very interested in the cutting edge of our industry. Um, the white ash is probably the most interesting because it manages to get the smoky, you know, sweet marshmallowiness of like a s'more made over, you know, a campfire right in the whiskey without being coyingly sweet. Um, and then the yellow birch has much more of you know, really accentuates the grain that was in that whiskey. So these are just our normal bourbon, uh, four grain bourbon that uh, have now had these woods in them for an extra six, eight months, uh, really developed this unique flavor, only a couple barrels. So again, they'll probably go out as experimentals and we may even start to blend some of those together. Um, you know, if you take cherry wood and apple wood and plum wood, you get really interesting notes from those fruits without it being uh, Jolly Rancher style. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, the goal is always to have that be subtle. You know, we don't want to smack you in the face with a white ash tree. We want you to know it's there and be able to recognize it, but also still know that it's great quality bourbon underneath. Um, and so these are, you know, some of the experiments we work on and the challenging part of the experiments is they don't all work out. Um, and so then what do you do with a barrel that went rogue that, you know, didn't develop the way you wanted it to. Um, and, uh, we have a variety of different ideas on that. Usually we try not to pour it out. Um, cause also you never know what time can do with it. You know, a barrel, you know, if a barrel, let's say was overly cherry and we thought it was too much, we would probably end up transferring that uh, that whiskey out of that barrel, removing those cherry staves, putting it in a different barrel, particularly one that maybe had been a single barrel, and letting some of that cherry mellow over time. And you'd be surprised, you know, sometimes two, three, four years later, something that was not good becomes very good. And if not, it takes up a spot in the rack house and eventually evaporates. Can't win them all.
Right. Well, as a, as a bourbon drinker, I'm, I'm always fascinated by this because I do, I'm not the science guy and I hear this stuff and I've just, I start drooling over some of these things. And this, this is going to be great to, to, to try. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenges come when, when we plan out the entire year. So as Alex and I will map out the schedule and here's all of our releases and then we're planning our social media and our marketing campaigns behind all of these mm-hmm. releases. We know what the year is going to look like. It doesn't always go that way. You sure. know, there may be some of these things like that didn't work so well. It's not going to happen. You got to do something else or, hey, Three months down the road, it actually turned out better. Now we can release this. And it's, there's a little bit of a choreography. And, and, and when we do release things and, and all of our marketing messaging, we have things that get in the way, like holidays, mm-hmm. um, things that are standard for us, like Lilac Gin that always comes out for Lilac Festival, which is in May. So we, we really need to tighten, uh, have a pretty tight schedule. But it's, uh, there's always some of these pleasant surprises that pop up that we have to, have to play with. And, of course, you get the joy of if you have the triple wood, you were talking about the apple wood, the plum wood in there as well. You got a challenge working on those labels to make sure you communicate that. Sure. Not yeah. only you've got the bourbon, the information about the bourbon, but also the additional staves on there. And yep. Um, right. Well, formulations. Yeah. Do we have to work with the TTB to get a formulation and the exactly. turnaround times? And now we may be looking at a government shutdown. Um, you know that process. Luckily, we're in a good spot. We got everything out of the out of the way before that uh, that that was uh, a, a real threat. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of steps. I mean, we, we we look at it. It probably takes about six months to incubate a brand if we're going to get it from the time that we conceive it mm-hmm. to the time that it goes out. And if we're we've done it in shorter periods of time, is something has come up that we really got to get this out. But, um, you know, if you're doing it right, you've really got to hit all the steps in the, in the logical order. And as for, unfortunately, as much as we'd like this to be the case, the TTB is not an essential service. Yeah, right. <laughs> we'd like it to be, but, um, the tax enforcement part of it is that is, yeah, <laughs> right. Very true. Right. And then we have the SLA, the New York SLA. So there's, there's a lot true. of steps. I mean, it's, um, but uh, you know, we've got a pretty good process. So, and, and, and I think we're, 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 we're on it and it's just a matter of, uh, all of us, uh, following it and, and, and hitting our dates. Oh, fantastic. Well, with that, I'm going to end by saying there are several products that um, hopefully I'm going to, you know, purchase, take home with me, and share with some friends, and uh, some which are uh, available through distribution, some which are only available here, and hopefully that'll encourage people to come up to Rochester to visit, to uh, meet you guys, talk about the spirits, and really enjoy them and explore them. And in the meantime, you know, Jason, thank you for coming back on. Greg, thank you for joining. Um, Alex, thank you for helping to set this up. Um, I just want to shout out to also Allison on the team for uh, helping to get me up here. It was a real pleasure to visit. Uh, it's my Honestly, I think it's my first time in Rochester. I may have been here when I was very young, but I don't remember, so I'll hedge my bets on that one. But, well, we um, appreciate having you. Yeah, it won't be the last time, so well, well, I look forward to coming and Thanks for coming up. Absolutely. Well, thank you, guys. This has been yeah. a very special episode. Really appreciate it. Um, also, this will have been announced already, but Black Button is now a sponsor of the Whiskey Ring podcast, and couldn't be happier to have you guys on and look forward to spreading the gospel of Black Button and also of New York whiskey writ large. Amen. It's yep. another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Thanks everyone for listening. Keep your eyes on the show notes and other news for releases and I will see you all next week. Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice. And let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedderring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume Under the Influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, 
Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or at Whiskey Ring Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Whiskey Ring. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.